Welcome, it's good to see you for the eighth in our series in the book of Revelation. I'm glad you've joined us for this. If you've been with us through this whole time, I'm pleased to tell you we are just about through with the tribulation. In fact, it will end tonight with a big bang. What is the tribulation, you asked? Actually, I'm glad you asked because I have this chart I wanna show you. The tribulation is a term given to chapters four through 19 in the book of Revelation. And that particular section talks about God's judgment of the earth. It features Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet rising up and Satan being cast out of heaven and unleashing his fury and wrath on the earth, trying to get people, deceiving them, coercing them to basically worship him. Oh, do they say, oh, I'm a Satan worshiper? No, no, no. They're, they're worshiping Satan because they turn from God. They turn to self. They turn to money or fame or fortune or comfort or whatever they turn to. That's fine with Satan. He said, then you're mine. I own you. It's the story of Satan playing out his rebellion against God. It's the story of people having the opportunity to turn, repent, to turn to God or to not repent. And we've seen it played out. And in seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath, we see God's threefold seven complete and full judgment at the end of time. So in Christian circles, how you view what's happening in chapters four through 19 really revolves around when do you think these visions, these events happen? Preterists say fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD, or maybe the fall of the Roman empire in the past. Historicists say right up to the present time and right up until uh, the second coming of Christ. In fact, all these events are coded and they match up with historical events. Futurists say this is all gonna happen in a seven year period and by the way, looks like we might be getting close to that seven year period. Symbolic view says that may be and certainly Christ will come again, but these truths have played themselves out in every Christian's life and throughout all of Christian history. It's talking about more than the fall of Jerusalem and more than the Roman Catholic Church, if you're a historicist, and more than just a seven-year time period at the end. It's really giving you truths that happen over and over, even on a personal level, if you will. So those are the views of the tribulation. And this is the last time you'll see this chart in our series because we're doing chapters 17 through 19 in the end of the tribulation, and then we'll turn to even more exciting things. Let's uh, jump in. First of all, chapter 17 begins with a story about a woman on a beast, and it's a little bit, it, it's consistent with the story of God's judgment, but it's a little bit of a detour. When we left our story at the end of the seven bowls of wrath, you see these spirits going out from Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and gathering up the kings of the world and bringing them to this place called Armageddon for a great final battle. Futurists would say that's the governments and armies of the Muslim countries and perhaps Russia and China and Iran, etc., coming against Israel and Israel's allies and that ignites this great battle of Armageddon. But whatever your view is, that's what was happening. Now we pause in chapter 17 and 18 and we basically see God saying, I wanna tell you about the judgment of the great prostitute sitting on the beast. In other words, the governments of this world or the, some would say, the false religion of this world and its alliance with Satan, the dragon. 
I'll show you what I mean. Chapter 17, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls that have been poured out now, that judgment is finished, came to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, a red beast that was covered with blasphemous names. That's Satan, we saw the great dragon covered with these names, with seven heads and 10 horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She has all the material wealth of the world. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, saints being Christians, believers, followers of Christ, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Wow, that is just powerful imagery. So let's talk first about this uh, image. First, in the book of Revelation, prostitution, adultery, sexual immorality, can mean and typically does mean prostitution, sexual immorality, adultery, but it is also a metaphor, a symbol for spiritual infidelity and immorality, meaning God is the one we should serve and we like faithless spouses go serve another God. And so it has kind of a dual meaning to it. If you remember, Back in chapter 2, verse 20, this is in the first section of Revelation where Jesus is speaking to the seven churches. He says to one of the churches, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate Jezebel who teaches my people to commit sexual immorality. Well, if you think about the Jezebel of the Old Testament to whom that's a reference, she certainly told people to literally commit sexual immorality and worship Baal through orgies and that's true, but what she did in a bigger sense was she took Israel and turned their hearts away from God and had them serving false gods, idols. So that imagery is it's ingrained. And so when you see this great harlot, great prostitute, she has basically been the one who killed the Christians because they would not commit spiritual adultery, if you will. And so you see the sexual immorality bound up with spiritual infidelity. And so that's who this is. She's called Babylon the Great because Babylon and Rome are the two great themes here. Babylon, the Babylonian uh, empire, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC, God's people at that time, his chosen people, the Jews, and they destroyed it. They were an, uh, a literally a conqueror, but they were also an evil power. And so they came to be understood as a Babylon was an evil power opposed to God. Rome destroyed the temple of God in 70 AD in Jerusalem and persecuted Christians for 200 years after that. And so Rome became a symbol of absolute 
power and absolute evil oppression. And so you'll see Babylon and Rome as symbols of the Antichrist and his kingdom, uh, symbols of man's desire to be God and oppose God and man's inhumanity to man. So Babylon and Rome appear all throughout Revelation as symbols of these rebellions against God, these powers, these empires, these uh, states in the world. So we see the uh, woman as an apostate entity. Uh, for example, the uh, preterists see what's happening here as the fall of Jerusalem. They see that the Jews had not, in 70 AD, the Jews had not believed in Christ, and this is a judgment on that false uh, religion, or perhaps a judgment on Rome later. The historicists see this as the papacy. In other words, historicists have understood the Antichrist in terms of the perversion. Now, I understand that Catholics don't agree with this, but this is how historicists understand this book. They say that the great perversion of Christianity has been the Catholic Church and the Pope setting himself up over time as Christ on earth, um, being God, uh, the oppression near the Protestant Reformation. There were a lot of people were killed by the Catholic Church for what they believed. And so, this was an oppressive force. And so they see the Antichrist, the false prophet, as being the Pope and the Catholic Church. And so historicists will look at this and say, this is God's judgment on that perversion of the truth of the gospel known as Catholicism. Give you an example of that, of how historicists understand it that way. Uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley was also understood revelation in this way. And here's what he's saying about Pope Benedict XIII. Benedict XIII, in his proclamation of the Jubilee in 1725, explains this sufficiently. His words are, this Catholic and apostolical Roman church is the head of the world, the mother of all believers, the faithful interpreter of God, and the mistress of all the churches. So I, I use this so you can see the imagery there as historicists understanding this woman on the beast as being God's judgment on the Catholic Church. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists typically see it this way. Here's an interesting twist. Jehovah's Witnesses actually see every other religion this way. In other words, that whether you're Catholic or whether you're Protestant or whatever your Christian religion is, if you're not Jehovah's Witnesses, you are apostate, meaning you are false religion. You have uh, distorted the religion of Christ, and so they would see all the other religions as being this woman on the beast in the service of Satan. Well, let's go on. Back to our uh, passage here, because I want to talk to you now about, so preterists understand this as judgment on Jerusalem or the Roman Empire, historicists on the Roman Catholic Church, futurists, what do they see going on here? Futurists see this as the new Roman Empire. So for example, they understand the Antichrist making this worldwide alliance of kings and countries and allying themselves against God's people, Israel in this case, typically, and that there's the tribulation up to chapter 19 has been like a nuclear war happening in real future time periods. And so they would see that the Antichrist has basically built a new Roman empire, if you will, sort of a world government kind of an idea. And they would see this woman as being the apostate religious entity that has propped it up, that there's been this false religion that says, oh no, the Antichrist is really a good 
uh, government and it wants to take care of you and those Christians are bad and you need to worship the beast. You need to worship, it won't be a beast obviously, you need to worship this ideology and this is the right way to go. And so futurists would see that whole world system being represented by the woman on this dragon. The uh, dispensational futurist, which is just a version for our sakes, without getting into a lot of detail, it's a particular version of futurist, understand this as being the Antichrist's kingdom, which will be literally rebuilt in Baghdad, in Babylon. Let me show you a map so you can see where ancient Babylon actually was in terms of today. Let me see if I can... Uh, highlight this for you. I want to show you where this is. So modern day Baghdad right here, this is the ancient city, the ruins of Babylon. It's in modern day uh, Iraq, or yeah, basically in Bag near Baghdad. And so some futurists would say, it's the new Roman Empire, but the fact that it said Babylon means there's going to be a world power, a world government that is built literally there. They would take that Babylon fairly literally and say this is going to be the headquarters of what's happening. Well, let's go on. There's one more view I'd like to talk about. So again, our same passage of the woman sitting on the beast. What the symbolic point of view would say about this is this is basically talking about every single totalitarian or oppressive government throughout all of history and into the future that set itself up to be the authority, the power on earth against the wishes of God. And that the fact that the woman is adorned with all the gold and all the materialism is that this woman is basically the self-indulgent powers of the earth prostituting themselves to idols. Give you an example to bring this home. For example, you might look at the American system, and I was gonna hit a little close to home, but those elements of the American system that worship greed, that worship oppressing other people to be rich, uh, that basically sell their souls, if you will, for fame and fortune and riches and basically exploit other people. There are elements in our culture, it's not just America, but I think in America, we know American history better. We can see, yes, you're right. There have been cases where greed became the god of certain people or companies or entities or whatever, and they have exploited other people. And they have, in a sense, to use my words, sold their soul to get this, they basically prostituted themselves to worship the gods of wealth or prosperity or pride or person or whatever. So a symbolic view would say that's, this is a judgment on anything like that, that turns itself away from God, values human beings less than things. That's a shame, isn't it? Sometimes you see cultures that value things more than people, and that's a perversion of God's order. So this woman, as you can see, a lot of different opinions about who the woman is sitting on the dragon. But in every case, you see her as symptomatic of the Antichrist's kingdom as this world system that sets itself up in opposition to God. And not only in opposition to God, this is the very one she's drinking and says she's drunk with the blood of the saints. I mean, that's very graphic, but the point is all of those pursuits end up persecuting those who believe God. And so she is a symbol of everybody that 
persecutes those who follow God to trade their souls for an idol. So the woman on the beast is an example of God saying, the time has come for her judgment. In other words, I will do justice. This is basically, I know it sounds crazy because you read Revelation, you get these images. And so you say, oh, the woman and the beast and God's judging them. What does that mean? Think about every, just to put it in concrete terms, think about the Hitlers of the world. Think about every cruel dictator. Think about the millions and millions of people, tens of millions that were killed by Stalin. Think about the more millions that were killed by Mao. Think about the oppressive, evil things that, that rulers and groups have done to others. In concrete terms, if you can picture one of those in your mind, think about God saying, justice will be done. Evil will not remain. This image is the image of God saying, I will judge evil. I will judge those who have killed and raped and exploited and been inhumane to my beloved creatures. So picture one of those in your mind. That's what this is talking about. It's talking about God's tangible justice. He's going to do right in the world. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone. Millstone's pretty big, but it's, uh, it's not humongous, and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpets will never be heard in you again. No workman will ever be found in you again. In other words, it's a judgment on the economic systems that are so oppressive in our world. Because if you notice this, I want you to think about North Korea for a minute. I just want to, I want to point out as an object lesson. You see a regime that combines everything Revelation is talking about. In, and as an illustration, think about it. It is militarily oppressive. It's held up by the threat of being killed, being put into hard labor for minor offenses, that people are being starved and they're killed for stealing food. In other words, there's a coercive power, a military power there. There's economic oppression. In other words, you can't go work harder and get food to feed your family. You can only have what the government gives you and there's rampant malnutrition and starving there. And finally, spiritual oppression. If you aren't happy every time you see the ruler and worship the ruler of your country, you can be killed for that. And so you see spiritual and economic and physical military oppression. That's what Babylon stands for. And so the scripture goes through all the elements. I mean, sometimes we tend to think of the Antichrist, oh, it's going to be a government and they're going to have guns and they're going to shoot people. And there's truth in that. They are militaristically oppressive and they're going to attack God's people. But there's economic oppression, there's spiritual deception, and that demand to be worshipped. So the book of Revelation does a brilliant job of describing what the Antichrist is really like, what those systems are, and how they have more to them than just physical oppression. And that's what this passage is talking about talking about the fate of Babylon. Here's a couple of interesting comments. Bruce Metzger says this, the message of the book of Revelation concerns the character and timeliness of God's judgment, not only of people, but also of nations, and in fact, of all principalities and powers, which is to say, all authorities, 
corporations, institutions, structures, bureaucracies, and the like. And to the extent that ecclesiastical denominations and sects have succumbed to the lure of power and prestige, the words of John are applicable also to present-day church structures. Metzger's exactly right on. When you see this language, it doesn't say, oh, by the way, I'm talking about bad governments uh, in the Middle East. It's talking about any government that behaves in this way, that oppresses, that sets itself up against God. But not just governments, economic institutions, corporations. We have examples of corporations that have been very evil in the way they have treated people, lying for profits, etc. I'm not talking about every corporation, but what Metzger is saying is that God's judgment isn't just reserved to rogue regimes, it's reserved to anything that does not serve him and instead serves evil. Every structure, including church structures. There's nothing that exempts, it exempts believers, those who are faithful, but sometimes our church structures. A great example of that would be the historicist view of the Catholic Church as being oppressive. They would say God's going to judge the Catholic Church. I mean, that's historicist understanding of this book. You may think they're wrong about that, but my point is it's an example of what Metzger is saying is that we need to be careful that we as a church structure don't succumb to the temptation of power and prestige, and we never lose our first love. It's all about Jesus Christ following him and carrying out his mission in the world. When we think it's about something else, Metzger's warning us, we too could fall under this kind of judgment. It's a timely warning for all of us. And then secondly, uh, Beale says this, here in a paragraph is the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. What ultimately divides the two is the willingness, or the lack thereof, to recognize who God is and to give him the honor and worship that he alone is due. Particularly in the West, this is another uh, warning to the Western world, we live in a profoundly anthropocentric culture which utterly fails to place God and his glory at the center. And if we do not resist this, we will find ourselves slipping all too easily into the hold of the kingdom of darkness. What's Beale saying? First of all, it's easy enough for us to read these passages, the woman on the dragon, the great Babylon is being judged for all of its oppression, and think to ourselves, yes, he's talking about the Hitlers of the world, the Stalins of the world, the Maos of the world, the Kim Jong-uns of the world. But what Beale is saying is that, yes, that's undoubtedly true, but be careful that we don't think, oh, that's only about them. What he's basically saying is our culture, if we aren't careful as Christians, it is anthropocentric, meaning it is me-centered, it's human-centered. Our culture, our secular culture, is basically not largely identifying itself as a God-following culture. It's a man-pleasing culture. And so what he's saying is, is that we as Christians who we don't think man is the measure of all things, we don't think we are the center of the universe, he says, but we live in a culture that does. And he said we should be careful because we have to remember whom we serve. We have to remember it's not all about us, even though our culture wants us to believe that. What Beale is saying is, yes, this is a judgment on all those evil rulers and nations of the world, but be careful lest we too be deceived and fall into the lure, basically, of putting ourselves at the center of the world too. 
It's nothing the New Testament doesn't teach us, and that is walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Be careful to confess our sins so that we can have pure hearts before God. So what they're saying is, is that don't think Revelation is only, only about one antichrist or one bad regime somewhere. It's also a warning to us to remember who we believe and be true to him. And it's a timely uh, warning, I think, particularly for those of us in the West, because if we're not careful, I think we could easily fall into the idea of adopting some of our culture's values into the church. That's always been a temptation for Christians. It's always been one of the things that the Bible has been our standard. And as long as we'll stay true to it, the spirit will keep us from that temptation. Next passage, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, we're now talking about this beast, are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Rome is a city set on seven hills. So again, you see this Rome imagery. But there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour, a short period of time, will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them. War against Christ, against Christ's people, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, faithful followers." Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Okay, well, that's uh, not exactly PG-13, is it? So what's happening here? What's this prophecy about? I'm going to skip a lot of the details, not because they're not interesting, but there are endless arguments about who the seven kings are, who's the eighth king, who are these 10 kings? Big picture, bottom line, it's a coalition of kings that are gonna enter in this battle of Armageddon. So we could argue about the little details, but you can also get lost in those little details. So for time's sake, you can read some commentaries, they'll all give you a lot of different opinions, uh, well, they'll each give you their own opinion about who these are. Read two or three of them and you'll see two or three opinions. I wanna focus down on what's really happening here. First of all, historicists are saying, again, it's about the Roman Catholic Church and the judgment of the Roman Catholic Church. And basically, after the French Revolution, you saw a lot of the kingdoms of the earth throw off the power of the Roman Catholic Church. They became Protestant, uh, they became secular. In other words, the Pope in the Middle Ages for a while, the Roman Catholic Church was pulling the strings for all the European nations. This is basically saying no more. They turned on the Roman Catholic Church, if you will. So that's a historicist point of view. Doesn't surprise you, it's all about the Pope. Futurist is talking about the seven great empires of history, <clears throat> these seven kings. Seven great empires of history, and most of them look at it from a Western point of view. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then this future kingdom of the Antichrist, the new Babylon or the new Rome. And so they see this as representative of, we're talking about the Antichrist kingdom here at the end times. We're really close to the very end. That the alliance of the 10 kings will be joining Russia and China and Iran and some of the other Muslim countries will be 
an alliance of 10 European nations that come together also to join in this great battle against Israel and its allies and the people of God. So we're kind of going to get everybody involved in this big battle of Armageddon. So depending on your point of view is, is what you see happening here. But there's an interesting lesson. What you see is the state turning on the church, in a sense. The woman, if she's a, an apostate religious entity and the dragon is the power of the state, it says he turns on her. She's the one who's been helping him. And I, I think there's an interesting lesson here. And I think it's a timely one for us, is that the power of the state will always turn on the power of the spiritual world, whatever it may be. I wanna just step back historically. Whether that is Buddhist China birthing secular rulers who tried to exterminate Buddhism in China, or whether that is Shinto in Japan, or whether it's Christianity in secular Europe being now persecuted by secular European governments. My point is that historically speaking, States don't like rivals to their power. And while a religion might help get you there, at some point the religion, whatever it may be, claims an allegiance from these people that only the ruler, only the state wants. And so you, you see this story so brilliantly played out as finally Satan turns on the very spiritual forces that helped him to corrupt the world. The state always turns on the belief system because it demands the ultimate allegiance. And so here's the point I'd like to make. Compromising with our cultural powers never works. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we are unreasonable people and we go to the polls and we won't vote on good legislation even if it's not perfect legislation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being citizens. I want you to think now more on the basis of our beliefs being challenged by the state and oppressing and saying, you know, your beliefs are okay, but you better keep them in your churches. Or your beliefs are okay, but that one's not. That's actually a hateful belief. You're gonna need to give that one up. Well, okay, we'll give that one up. Now, are we good? Oh yeah, we're fine. My point is compromising with powers like that will not work. The best you can do is this. You'll be the last one to be eaten. That's as good as it gets. And so what I'm saying to you is be true to the truth of Jesus Christ and compromising the truth of Christ to make peace with the power of our world will not work because in the end, the world powers, Satan is behind this, demands ultimate allegiance. So be warned that compromising the truth, the essence of the gospel, of who Jesus is, is a fool's errand. I think this really brilliantly kind of points that out. Look what it goes on to say. By the way, this is an interesting passage because this is the only place in the New Testament. In fact, it's the only chapter where you see the word hallelujah, by the way. It says this, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and the sound of thunder shouting hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen, bright and clean means righteousness. You are reconciled to God. God says you are 
right. You are, your sin is gone. Your clothes are clean and white, and they were given by God because of what Jesus has done. Then the angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. The wedding supper of the Lamb is a theme that runs through the New Testament. Let me show you a passage just to set this up. You're very familiar with this passage. It is, uh, excuse me, Ephesians Chapter five, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish. In this same way, husbands ought also to love their wives. So the church, and when I say church, what I mean is all the faithful followers of Christ. I don't mean everybody that goes into every church building in the world. I don't think anybody means that. But when they say the church, talking about those faithful followers, the one they've talked about all through the tribulation, the ones who didn't worship the beast, didn't get the number of the beast on their foreheads, all those faithful people are called the bride of Christ. Why? Frankly, because marriage is the most intimate relationship that we know. And so this metaphor is used about how much Christ loves us and how we will become one with him. And so the Jesus parables, he tells a lot of parables about you are basically like the bride and I am the groom and I will return and I will take you home with me. Remember those passages? Be ready, be faithful. What does it mean when you say be ready? Be found faithful, continue to be faithful. Don't quote, prostitute yourself. Don't become spiritually unfaithful. Be found faithful when I come for you because I will surely come and take you to be with me. So you see this imagery of a wedding and now it talks about it's time. The wedding feast of the lamb is about to happen. God's people are the bride of Christ. That's the imagery that is used. And he's saying, it's time now. Invitations are going out to all the faithful believers to come to the wedding supper of the lamb. At the same time, how do people understand this passage? What do they think is happening here? Uh, typically, they say in this passage that the wedding feast of the lamb is about to happen. Historicists say the papacy has fallen. The true church is now recognized by God. They would say that's basically, I mean, from a historicist's point of view, that's the Protestant churches have regained the truth of the Bible. In other words, Luther and Calvin and the reformers went back to the Bible, uh, used the printing press, printed it, gave it to people and said, here's the truth. And so you have the opportunity to be true followers of Christ. So historicists, predictably, are gonna understand this as people coming back to the truth of Jesus Christ. Futurists are gonna see either a post-tribulation rapture, meaning that tribulation's about over, and so Christ is gonna come get his people. I'm thinking pre-trib sounds better. Maybe he come get us out of here before this starts. Post-tribulation rapture, not the most popular view, but they might see a post-tribulation rapture, Jesus taking his people out right before the battle of Armageddon, or it's just talking about believers being reunited with Christ in heaven. We're brought together and the imagery that's used is, hey, it's time for the wedding and the great feast. We get to be reunited with Christ. That's the image of heaven, if you will. And then a, a symbolic point of view simply says, this is basically God saying that he is fulfilling what Jesus said. Listen to this in John 14. 
He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. This is a clear reference to ancient marriage customs. Like, when I build on a room for you, I will come for my bride and then we can get married and I will take you to live with me. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that we can be together where I am. And so this is Jesus, a symbolic view says, this is Revelation reminding us, our Savior went to prepare a place for us. Nothing can keep us from being reunited with him. There's no power in this world, not the dragon, not the antichrist, not the false prophet. If we will be faithful, there's no power in this world. They can kill our bodies, but they cannot keep us from eternal life with Christ. Symbolic view says that's the big idea here. And everyone would agree that's certainly an idea. Symbolic view says this is Jesus reminding us of this promise in John chapter 14. And that's what's happening here. Next, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. This is Armageddon, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Dipped in blood, the blood of the lamb is what makes your garments clean. Remember the song, you know, because of your blood, I'm washed white as snow. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ is what takes away our sins. That's what this means. His robe has been dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. This is Jesus. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. In other words, these are those who are righteous. Their sins are gone. They are united with God. These are the believers. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, don't think literal sword. The word of God is called a sword, a sharp sword that divides good and evil, truth, and lies. And so you see the word of God, the truth of this revelation of Jesus Christ, of the things he says, this is right, this is wrong, this is true, this is a lie, this is good, this is evil. His very word is a sword that divides, that judges. Not talking about going to come down and cut a bunch of people's heads off or anything, is that we are convicted by his very word that we have. And so he rules uh, the nations with an iron scepter, that's an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. This is ultimate judgment. So for example, if you're a futurist, you think we have a real battle going on in a real time in the future, and you've got all these armies together, and now the second coming of Christ happens. Christ appears. And symbolic view would say, this is the judgment. This is not intervening in a war. This is the judgment, and we will all be judged by the truth of the word of God. Were we faithful to Jesus Christ? Did we hold to the truth, or did we believe a lie? And so symbolic will say, this is judgment. 
Futurists will say, this is a real war happening and Jesus will literally miraculously appear and all of the enemies will perish. They'll be caught up to be condemned and to be judged. But the really interesting imagery here is everybody's going to a feast. It just depends on which one you're going to. Does this sound familiar? From the New Testament, Jesus said they're sheep and they're goats. Can't serve God and money. I mean, it's always a dividing. You're in the light or you're in the dark. In other words, Jesus saying, what will you do? Will you repent from those ways? Will you follow me? And so you get one or the other. You are either going to the wedding feast of the lamb or you are going to the wedding feast with the birds who will eat the flesh of those who have opposed God. I know it's a little gruesome, but look how Revelation paints that. Do you want to go to heaven and be with God or do you want the inevitable end of following false gods? And that is destruction. And it paints it in this vivid picture of you be lying dead on a battlefield and the birds will be eating your flesh. Or you can be celebrating with the Christ in heaven. And so it paints this stark picture. Jesus painted that picture just as starkly. Remember he said, where you go when you are condemned, there'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth into the outer darkness. He talked in just as stark terms about our choices. And so that's what you see happening here at this great battle. This is the battle of Armageddon. In Hebrew, the word Armageddon comes from Har Megiddo. Megiddo is a real place. It is a town that sits on a tell, a hill, if you will, on the edge of a huge plain. Let me show you a map so you can see where I'm talking about here because this is really powerful to see. This is Israel, and what you see is uh, Megiddo. I'll show you some pictures of Megiddo. There are ruins there now. There have been like 26 different civilizations on Megiddo because it's a hugely strategic place to be militarily. Megiddo sits on the Jezreel Valley, and the Jezreel Valley goes right there. It's a big, wide plain, and because it's a big, wide, flat area, it's really easy to march armies through there. And so, through all of history, the empires in the north and the empires in the south would meet there. And you can get a lot of soldiers and you can get wagons and artillery and tanks and anything you want to get there because it's big, broad, flat area. There have been so many battles in history fought on the plain of Jezreel. And overlooking it is Har Megiddo, the mount or the hill of Megiddo. That's where we get our word Armageddon, Har Megiddo. And so this hill of Megiddo, this ancient fortress that guarded this valley, oversaw so many battles in history. And so whether you think that battle will literally happen there, or it's just telling you, yes, the place where so many battles have happened, that's where the ultimate battle is going to happen. Let me show you a couple of pictures from there. This is on Megiddo looking out over the valley of Jezreel. These are some of the ruins up there, are quite extensive ruins. There's some of the city walls and a gate at Megiddo. So you see the remainder of these fortresses and these civilizations from so long ago and so many different peoples. Here's a great picture. This is standing on the tail looking across this broad plain of Jezreel. You can just imagine through all of history tens of thousands of soldiers, Egyptians and Babylonians and Assyrians and 
if you, the futurists are right, Russians and Iranians, etc., coming together on this plane for a great battle. And so some understand that this literally is where the Battle of Armageddon will happen, is that if you're a futurist, you have all these armies from the east and the 10 kings of Europe, and they bring their armies to this very place in Israel, and you see Israel and its allies lined up, and then Christ intervenes. We don't win this battle with our military power. Jesus Christ appears and all the earth takes a knee before him. And he conquers by the truth of his word, the word of God. Uh, symbolic point of view understands this is every Armageddon. This is Christ judging every unjust, every rebellious regime or institution in all of history. This is symbolic of the second coming of Christ and the judgment of those who are evil. So you're at the end of the tribulation and you're at the second coming of Christ. Let me go on to finish this passage. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, the antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies all gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Now stop and think about it. We talked about how our enemies seem to be flesh and blood and governments, but then that's true. But really it's the spiritual forces behind that. It's Satan. And those powers, they don't think they're making war on Christ. They think they're making war on believers. But he says, you're picking on my people. You are making war with me. That this world is at war with Jesus Christ. And so he says here, he makes war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And look, notice this. There's not much to this war. That's why there's no movie made about this. This is not Lord of the Rings. It's not like, ooh, wonder who's going to win. I mean, it's kind of anticlimactic, right? You're like, oh, are you kidding me? I was expecting maybe a three-hour movie about the battle, you know? Maybe a Hobbit kind of a movie or something. No, the point of this is Satan's power is not equal to God's. That's why when Jesus said, you're going to have trouble in this world, but take heart. I've overcome this world. What he meant was is Satan's power is nothing compared to God's. He cannot win. And look what happens in this battle. It's hardly a battle. It just says they came to fight against him, but the beast was captured and the false prophet who had performed all those miraculous signs. With these signs, he had deluded, deceived those who received the mark of the beast. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that comes out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. Were they literally killed? They were judged and found to be untrue, found to be evil, found to be not followers or lovers of the truth. And so their souls are condemned. So it's not so much about Jesus coming and literally killing people. That's the imagery that is used. What it's saying is we'll be judged by the truth of God's word and we'll be found to be the birds gorging themselves on our flesh. It's God's way of saying we'll be found to be condemned. So futurists see this as a literal battle and Jesus comes and miraculously wins the battle. Spiritualists say this is everything. The last point I want to leave you with is this though, before we leave the tribulation and move on to the next fascinating uh, part of the book of Revelation is simply this. I don't want you to think of Revelation and all these scenes of judgment and the wrath of God and the justice of God. We all demand justice, and that's what we're seeing, as being in somehow not a part of who Jesus is. The Jesus who comes on the horse and slays evil with the word 
the sword of his mouth is the same one who came and died on a cross because he loved the people in this world. Beale says it this way, and I think he says it very well. How often do we consider the full biblical picture of Jesus? I would argue not often enough. We like to take little snapshots of the Jesus we want. But Beale says, how often do we consider the full biblical picture of Jesus? The mystery is of one who hung defenseless on a cross, taking the punishment of our sins and calling us to serve him in weakness, and at the same time, one day will ride forth to execute vengeance with us beside him. A true understanding of Christ can only come as we consider all the elements of who he is. I cannot overemphasize how important this is. You see, one of the great statements, <laughs> I won't attribute this for you, but because uh, I don't want you to think badly of this theologian, but he said one of the reasons that the Western world, America, hasn't produced any really great atheists, any really powerful atheists, is the religion that we sometimes have isn't interesting enough to rebel against. Let that sink in for a second. Now, I don't know that he's necessarily right, but he's saying the same thing. He said, if we don't let Jesus be who he really is, and we make Jesus just a little picture of him, maybe the soft and cuddly Jesus, the Jesus who meets every need of mine. In other words, if we don't let him be who he really is in all of his glory, in all of his power, all of his love, but also all of his justice and his power, if we don't let him be who he is, that religion can be so weak and ineffective that it cannot sustain us. It cannot take us through this power. And that's what Beale's saying, and I agree with him. We need to let Jesus be who he is. Because if I serve a God who loves me but isn't powerful enough to hold my soul through the trials, that isn't enough to walk with us through cancer and death and everything that happens to us, then that's not a God that I want to believe in. And that's not who Jesus is. He is the God who loved us enough to die on a cross and is powerful enough to do justice in the world. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus worth serving. Well, next, we're going to leave the tribulation. And I want you to leave it with that thought. You now have a much better picture of who Jesus really is. This is a Jesus that we can give our whole self to. But next comes the most debated chapter in the Bible, the millennium, the thousand-year reign. And we're going to answer this interesting question. Is Satan loose on the earth right now? Or is he bound and he's going to be unleashed shortly? I don't know. Look around this week, see if you see any signs of him. That's what we'll talk about next time. Thank you.